Hey all, welcome to ChapterWise, where I take public domain or other authorized use works of fiction and narrate them for you, one chapter at a time. If you like what you hear, please follow my channel. I upload new chapters three, four, sometimes even five times a week. The Sorrows of Satan, or the Strange Experience of One Jeffrey Tempest, Millionaire. A Romance by Marie Corelli, first published in 1895. Chapter 28 One of the strangest things in all the strange course of our human life is the suddenness of certain unlooked-for events, which, in a day or even an hour, may work utter devastation where there has been more or less peace, and hopeless ruin where there has been comparative safety. Like the shock of an earthquake, the clamorous incidents thunder in on the regular routine of ordinary life, crumbling down our hopes, breaking our hearts, and scattering our pleasures into the dust and ashes of despair. And this kind of destructive trouble generally happens in the midst of apparent prosperity, without the least warning and with all the abrupt fierceness of a desert storm. It is constantly made manifest to us in the unexpected and almost instantaneous downfall of certain members of society, who have held their heads proudly above their compeers, and have presumed to pose as examples of light and leading to the whole community. We see it in the capricious fortunes of kings and statesmen, who are in favor one day and disgrace the next, and vast changes are wrought with such inexplicable quickness that it is scarcely wonderful to hear of certain religious sects who, when everything is prospering more than usually well with them, make haste to put on garments of sackcloth and cast ashes on their heads, praying aloud, Prepare us, O Lord, for the evil days which are at hand. The moderation of the Stoics, who considered it impious either to rejoice or grieve, and strove to maintain an equable middle course between the opposing elements of sorrow and joy, without allowing themselves to be led away by overmuch delight or overmuch melancholy, was surely a wise habit of temperament. I, who lived miserably as far as my inner and better consciousness was concerned, was yet outwardly satisfied with the material things of life and the luxuries surrounding me, and I began to take comfort in these things, and with them endeavored to quell and ignore my more subtle griefs, succeeding so far in that I became more and more of a thorough materialist every day, loving bodily ease, appetizing food, costly wine, and personal indulgence to a degree that robbed me gradually of even the desire for mental effort. I taught myself, moreover, almost insensibly, to accept and tolerate what I knew of the wanton side of my wife's character. True, I respected her less than the Turk respects the creature of his harem, but like the Turk I took a certain savage satisfaction in being the possessor of her beauty, and with this feeling and the brute passion it engendered, I was fain to be content, so that for a short time at least the drowsy satisfaction of a well-fed, well-mated animal was mine. I imagined that nothing short of a stupendous financial catastrophe to the country itself could exhaust my stock of cash, 
and that therefore there was no necessity for me to exert myself in any particular branch of usefulness, but simply to eat, drink, and be merry as Solomon advised. Intellectual activity was paralyzed in me. To take up my pen and write, and make another and higher bid for fame, was an idea that now never entered my mind. I spent my days in ordering about my servants and practicing the petty pleasures of tyranny on gardeners and grooms, and in generally giving myself airs of importance, mingled with an assumption of toleration and benevolence for the benefit of all those in my employ. I knew the proper thing to do well enough. I had not studied the ways of the over-wealthy for nothing. I was aware that the rich man never feels so thoroughly virtuous as when he has inquired after the health of his coachman's wife and has sent her a couple of pounds for the outfit of her newborn baby. The much prated of kindness of heart and generosity possessed by millionaires generally amounts to this kind of thing. And when, if idly strolling about my parklands, I happened to meet the small child of my lodgekeeper, and then and there bestowed sixpence upon it, I almost felt as if I deserved a throne in heaven at the right hand of the Almighty, so great was my appreciation of my own good nature. Sybil, however, never affected this sort of county magnate beneficence. She did nothing at all among our poor neighbors. The clergyman of the district unfortunately happened to let slip one day a few words to the effect that there was no great want of anything among his parishioners, owing to the continual kindness and attention of Miss Clare. And Sybil never from that moment preferred any assistance. Now and then she took her graceful person into Lily Cottage and sat with its happy and studious occupant for an hour, and occasionally the fair author herself came and dined with us, or had afternoon tea under the branching elms on the lawn, but even I, intense egotist as I was, could see that Mavis was scarcely herself on these occasions. She was always charming and bright, of course. Indeed, the only times in which I was able to partially forget myself and the absurdly increasing importance of my personality and my own esteem were when she, with her sweet voice and animated manner, brought her wide knowledge of books, men, and things to bear on the conversation, thus raising it to a higher level than was ever reached by my wife or me. Yet I now and then noticed a certain vague constraint about her, and her frank eyes had frequently a pained and questioning look of trouble when they rested for any length of time on the enchanting beauty of Sybil's face and form. I, however, paid little heed to these trifling matters, my whole care being to lose myself more and more utterly in the enjoyment of purely physical ease and comfort, without troubling myself as to what such self-absorption might lead in the future. To be completely without a conscience, without a heart and without sentiment was, I perceived, the best way to keep one's appetite and preserve one's health. To go about worrying over the troubles of other people, or put oneself out to do any good in the world, would involve such an expenditure of time and trouble as must inevitably spoil one's digestion. And I saw that no millionaire or even moderately rich man cares to run the risk of injuring his digestion for the sake of performing a kindness to a poorer fellow creature. Profiting by the examples presented to me everywhere in society, 
I took care of my digestion, and was particular about the way in which my meals were cooked and served, particular too as to the fashion in which my wife dressed for those meals, for it suited my supreme humor to see her beauty bedecked as suitably and richly as possible, that I might have the satisfaction of considering her points with the same epicurean fastidiousness as I considered a dish of truffles or specially prepared game. I never thought of the stern and absolute law, unto whom much is given, even from him, should much be required. I was scarcely aware of it, in fact. The New Testament was of all books in the world the most unfamiliar to me. And while I willfully deafened myself to the voice of conscience, that voice which ever and anon urged me in vain to a nobler existence, the clouds were gathering ready to burst above me with that terrific suddenness such as always seems to us who refuse to study the causes of our calamities, as astonishing and startling as death itself. For we are always more or less startled at death, notwithstanding that it is the commonest occurrence known. Towards the middle of September, my royal and distinguished house party arrived and stayed at Willowsmere Court for a week. Of course, it is understood that whenever the Prince of Wales honors any private residence with a visit, he selects, if not all, at any rate the greater part of those persons who are to be invited to meet him. He did so in the present instance, and I was placed in the odd position of having to entertain certain people whom I had never met before, and who, with the questionable taste frequently exhibited among the upper ten, looked upon me merely as the man with the millions, the caterer for their provisions, and no more, directing their chief attention to Sybil, who was by virtue of her birth and associations one of their set, and pushing me, their host, more or less into the background. However, the glory of entertaining royalty more than sufficed for my poor pride at that time, and with less self-respect than an honest cur, I was content to be snubbed and harassed and worried a hundred times a day by one or the other of the great personages who wandered at will all over my house and grounds, and accepted my lavish hospitality. Many people imagine that it must be an honor to entertain a select party of aristocrats, but I, on the contrary, consider that it is not only a degradation to one's manlier and more independent instincts, but also a bore. These highly bred, highly connected individuals are for the most part unintelligent and devoid of resources in their own minds. They are not gifted as conversationalists or wits. One gains no intellectual advantage from their society. They are simply dull folk with an exaggerated sense of their own importance who expect wherever they go to be amused without trouble to themselves. Out of all the visitors at Willowsmere, the only one whom it was really a pleasure to serve was the Prince of Wales himself, and amid the many personal irritations I had to suffer from others, I found it a positive relief to render him any attention, however slight, because his manner was always marked by that tact and courtesy which are the best attributes of a true gentleman, whether he be prince or peasant. In his own affable way, he went one afternoon to see Mavis Clare, and came back in high good humor, talking for some time of nothing but the author of Differences, and of the success she had achieved in literature. 
I had asked Mavis to join our party before the prince came, as I felt pretty sure he would not have erased her name from the list of guests submitted to him. But she would not accept, and begged me very earnestly not to press the point. I like the prince, she had said. Most people like him who know him. But I do not always like those who surround him. Pardon me for my frankness. The Prince of Wales is a social magnet. He draws a number of persons after him who by dint of wealth, if not intelligence, can contrive to push into his set. Now I am not an advocate of push. Moreover, I do not care to be seen with everybody. This is my sinful pride, you will say, or as our American cousins would put it, my cussedness. But I assure you, Mr. Tempest, the best possession I have, and one which I value a great deal more even than my literary success, is my absolute independence, and I would not have it thought, even erroneously, that I am anxious to mix with the crowd of sycophants and time-servers who are only too ready to take advantage of the prince's good nature. And, acting upon her determination, she had remained more than ever secluded in her cottage nest of foliage and flowers during the progress of the week's festivities. The result being, as I have stated, that the prince dropped in upon her quite casually one day, accompanied by his equerry, and probably, for all I knew, had the pleasure of seeing the Dove reviewers fed and squabbling over their meal. Much as we had desired and expected the presence of Romanes at our gathering, he did not appear. He telegraphed his regrets from Paris, and followed the telegram by a characteristic letter which ran thus. My dear Tempest, you are very kind to wish to include me, your old friend, in the party you have invited to meet His Royal Highness, and I only hope you will not think me churlish for refusing to come. I am sick to death of royalties. I have known so many of them in the course of my existence that I begin to find their society monotonous. Their positions are all so exactly alike, too, and moreover have always been alike from the days of Solomon in all his glory down to the present blessed era of Victoria, Queen, and Empress. One thirsts for a change, at least I do. The only monarch that ever fascinated my imagination particularly was Richard Coeur de Lyon. There was something original and striking about that man, and I presume he would have been well worth talking to. And Charlemagne was, doubtless, as the slangy young man of the day would observe, not half bad. But for the rest, un fico. Much talk is there made about Her Majesty Elizabeth, who was a shrew and a vixen and bloodthirsty withal. The chief glory of her reign was Shakespeare, and he made kings and queens the dancing puppets of his thought. In this, though, in nothing else, I resemble him. You will have enough to do in the entertainment of your distinguished guests, for I suppose there is no amusement they have not tried, and found more or less unsatisfactory. And I am sorry I can suggest nothing particularly new for you to do. Her Grace, the Duchess of Rapid Rider is very fond of being tossed in a strong tablecloth between four able-bodied gentlemen of good birth and discretion before going to bed o' nights. She cannot very well appear on a music-hall stage, you know, owing to her exalted rank, and this is a childlike, pretty and harmless method of managing to show her legs, which she rightly considers are too shapely to be hidden. Lady Bouncer 
whose name I see in your list, always likes to cheat at cards. I would aid and abet her in her aim if I were you, as if she can only clear her dressmaker's bill by her winnings at Willowsmere. She will bear it in mind and be a useful social friend to you. The Honorable Miss Fitzgander, who has a great reputation for virtue, is anxious, for pressing and particular reasons, to marry Lord Noodles. If you can move on matters between them into a definite engagement of marriage before her lady mother returns from her duty visits in Scotland, you will be doing her a good turn and saving society a scandal. To amuse the men, I suggest plenty of shooting, gambling, and unlimited smoking. To entertain the prince, do little, for he is clever enough to entertain himself privately with the folly and humbug of those he sees around him, without actually sharing in the petty comedy. He is a keen observer, and must derive infinite gratification from his constant study of men and manners, which is sufficiently deep and searching to fit him for the occupation of even the throne of England. I say even, for at present, till time's great hourglass turns, it is the grandest throne in the world. The prince reads, understands, and secretly laughs to scorn the tablecloth vagaries of the Duchess of Rapidryer, the humors of Lady Bouncer, and the nervous pruderies of the Honorable Miss Fitzgander, and there is nothing he will appreciate so much in his reception as a lack of toadyism, a sincere demeanor, an unobstentatious hospitality, a simplicity of speech, and a total absence of affectation. Remember this, and take my advice for what it is worth. Of all the royalties at present flourishing on this paltry planet, I have the greatest respect for the Prince of Wales, and it is by reason of this very respect that I do not intend, on this occasion at any rate, to thrust myself upon his notice. I shall arrive at Willowsmere when your royal festivities are over. My homage to your fair spouse, the Lady Sybil, and believe me, yours as long as you desire it. Lucio Romanus. I laughed over this letter and showed it to my wife, who did not laugh. She read it through with a closeness of attention that somewhat surprised me, and when she laid it down there was a strange look of pain in her eyes. How he despises us all, she said slowly. What scorn underlies his words? Do you not recognize it? He was always a cynic, I replied indifferently. I never expect him to be anything else. He seems to know some of the ways of the women who are coming here. She went on in the same musing accents. It is as if he read their thoughts and perceived their intentions at a distance. Her brows knitted frowningly, and she seemed for some time absorbed in gloomy meditation. But I did not pursue the subject. I was too intent on my own fussy preparations for the prince's arrival to care about anything else. And, as I have said, royalty, in the person of one of the most genial of men, came and went through the whole program devised for his entertainment, and then departed again with his usual courteous acknowledgments for the hospitality offered and accepted, leaving us as he generally leaves everybody, charmed with his good humor and condescension provided his temper has not been ruffled. When, with his exit from the scene, the whole party broke up, leaving my wife and me to our own two selves once more, there came a strange silence and desolation over the house, 
that was like the stealthy sense of some approaching calamity. Sybil seemed to feel it as much as I did, and though we said nothing to each other concerning our mutual sensations, I could see that she was under the same cloud of depression as myself. She went oftener to Lily Cottage, and always from these visits to the fair-haired student among the roses, came back, I hopefully fancied in softer mood. Her very voice was gentler, her eyes more thoughtful and tender. One evening she said, I have been thinking, Geoffrey, that perhaps there is some good in life after all, if I could only find it out and live it. But you are the last person to help me in such a matter. I was sitting in an armchair near the open window smoking, and I turned my eyes upon her with some astonishment and a touch of indignation. What do you mean, Sybil? I asked. Surely you know that I have the greatest desire to see you always in your best aspect. Many of your ideas have been most repugnant to me. Stop there, she said quickly, her eyes flashing as she spoke. My ideas have been repugnant to you, you say? What have you done, you as my husband, to change those ideas? Have you not the same base passions as I? And do you not give way to them as basely? What have I seen in you from day to day that I should take you as an example? You are master here, and you rule with all the arrogance wealth can give. You eat, drink, and sleep. You entertain your acquaintances simply that you may astonish them by the excess of luxury in which you indulge. You read and smoke, shoot and ride, and there an end. You are an ordinary, not an exceptional, man. Do you trouble to ask what is wrong with me? Do you try with the patience of a great love to set before me nobler aims than those I have consciously or unconsciously imbibed? Do you try to lead me, an erring, passionate, misguided woman, into what I dream of as the light, the light of faith and hope which alone gives peace? And suddenly, burying her head in the pillows of the couch on which she leaned, she broke into a fit of smothered weeping. I drew my cigar from my mouth and stared at her helplessly. It was about an hour after dinner in a warm, soft, autumnal evening. I had eaten and drunk well, and I was drowsy and heavy-brained. Dear me, I murmured, you seem very unreasonable, Sybil. I suppose you are hysterical. She sprang up from the couch, her tears dried on her cheeks as though by sheer heat of the crimson glow that flushed them, and she laughed wildly. Yes, that is it, she exclaimed. Hysteria, nothing else. It is accountable for everything that moves a woman's nature. A woman has no right to have any emotions that cannot be cured by smelling salts. Heartache, poo, cut her stay lace. Despair and a sense of sin and misery, nonsense. Bathe her temples with vinegar. An uneasy conscience, ah, for an uneasy conscience there is nothing better than salt volatile. Woman is a toy, a breakable fool's toy. And when she is broken, throw her aside and have done with her. Don't try to piece together the fragile rubbish. She ceased abruptly, panting for breath. And before I could collect my thoughts or find any words wherewith to reply, a tall shadow suddenly darkened the embrasure of the window, and a familiar voice inquired, May I, with the privilege of friendship, enter unannounced? I started up. Romanes, I cried, seizing him by the hand. Nay, Geoffrey, my homage is due here first. 
he replied, shaking off my grasp and advancing to Sybil, who stood perfectly still where she had risen up in her strange passion. Lady Sybil, am I welcome? Can you ask it? she said with an enchanting smile, and in a voice from which all harshness and excitement had fled. More than welcome. Here she gave him both her hands, which he respectfully kissed. You cannot imagine how much I have longed to see you again. I must apologize for my sudden appearance, Geoffrey, he then observed, turning to me. But as I walked here from the station and came upon your fine avenue of trees, I was so struck with the loveliness of this place and the exquisite peace of its surroundings that— Knowing my way through the grounds, I thought I would just look about and see if you were anywhere within sight, before I presented myself at the conventional door of entrance. And I was not disappointed. I found you, as I expected, enjoying each other's society. The happiest and most fortunate couple existent. People whom, out of all the world, I should be disposed to envy, if I envied worldly happiness at all, which I do not. I glanced at him quickly. He met my gaze with a perfectly unembarrassed air, and I concluded that he had not overheard Sybil's sudden melodramatic outburst. Have you dined? I asked with my hand on the bell. Thanks, yes. The town of Leamington provided me with quite a sumptuous repast of bread and cheese and ale. I am tired of luxuries, you know. That is why I find plain fare delicious. You are looking wonderfully well, Geoffrey. Shall I offend you if I say you are growing, yes, positively, stout, with the stoutness befitting a true country gentleman, who means to be as gouty in the future as his respectable ancestors? I smiled, but not altogether with pleasure. It is never agreeable to be called stout in the presence of a beautiful woman to whom one has only been wedded a matter of three months. You have not put on any extra flesh. I said by way of feeble retort. No, he admitted, as he disposed his slim, elegant figure in an armchair near my own. The necessary quantity of flesh is a bore to me always. Extra flesh would be a positive infliction. I should like, as the irreverent though reverend Sidney Smith said, on a hot day, to sit in my bones, or rather, to become a spirit of fine essence like Shakespeare's Ariel, if such things were possible and permissible. How admirably married life agrees with you, Lady Sybil. His fine eyes rested upon her with apparent admiration. She flushed under his gaze, I saw, and seemed confused. When did you arrive in England? she inquired. Yesterday, he answered. I ran over Channel from Honfleur in my yacht. You did not know I had a yacht, did you, Tempest? Oh, you must come for a trip in her some day. She is a quick vessel and the weather was fair. Is Amiel with you? I asked. No, I left him on board the yacht. I can, as the common people say, valet myself for a day or two. A day or two? echoed Sybil. But you surely will not leave us so soon. You promised to make a long visit here. Did I? and he regarded her steadily with the same languorous admiration in his eyes. But, my dear Lady Sybil, time alters our ideas, and I am not sure whether you and your excellent husband are of the same opinion as you were when you started on your wedding tour. You may not want me now. 
He said this with a significance to which I paid no heed whatever. Not want you, I exclaimed. I shall always want you, Lucio. You are the best friend I ever had, and the only one I care to keep. Believe me, there's my hand upon it. He looked at me curiously for a minute, then turned his head towards my wife. And what does Lady Sybil say? He asked in a gentle, almost caressing tone. Lady Sybil says, she answered with a smile and the color coming and going in her cheeks, that she will be proud and glad if you will consider Willowsmere your home as long as you have leisure to make it so, and that she hopes, though you are reputed to be a hater of women, here she raised her beautiful eyes and fixed them full upon him, you will relent a little in favor of your present chatelaine. With these words, and a playful salutation, she passed out of the room into the garden and stood on the lawn at a little distance from us, her white robes shimmering in the mellow autumnal light. And Lucio, springing up from his seat, looked after her, clapping his hand down heavily on my shoulder. By heaven, he said softly, a perfect woman. I should be a churl to withstand her, or you, my good Geoffrey. And he regarded me earnestly. I have led a very devil of a life since I saw you last. It's time I reformed. Upon my soul it is. The peaceful contemplation of virtuous marriage will do me good. Send for my luggage to the station, Geoffrey, and make the best of me. I've come to stay. That's it for today's chapter, everyone. Thanks for coming along on the ride. I'm always looking ahead for my next project for this channel, so if there's anything you'd like to hear, drop your suggestions in the comments or send a message to the email linked in the description of each episode. Whatever platform you're listening on, just know that I deeply appreciate the time you spend with me here. Please don't forget to like and subscribe, and see you next time!